RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Uh, good morning, everybody. It is the Legal Hub on Wednesday morning with Katie Ashby Coppins and Nick Kearney. Uh, we are joining you to, uh, well, we're joining you with a bit of a different show this time. As our uh, dear host and uh, leader would often say, there is never a dull moment in the law. And so that we can give our dear leader and host a um, morning off, uh, Nick and I have decided that we'll see how we go taking this show ourselves. So, uh, Nick, over to you. What have we got in line for this week? We've got five topics this morning, Katie. The first is the new document or the document proposed by the DAA called Safer Online Services and Media Platforms Discussion Document. And that's with the you know push for... Uh, regulation of platforms on the internet, and uh, we're going to talk about that and uh, submissions uh, when they're due and encourage listeners to submit. Second up, we're going to go into more detail with the GF and Customs case, which was the vaccine mandate case we talked about last week. Uh, after that, we'll look at a case from the UK, uh, a, a banking case where uh, a lady had lost £700,000 and tried to blame the bank, uh, with Supreme Court said, sorry, lady, uh, not their fault. Uh, the next uh, topic after that, we'll have a look at uh, something a little bit weird out of Canada, where a party did, entered into a contract through the use of an emoji on a text message, which was a thumbs up, which bound the parties to a contract. So that's something to be wary of, the old emoji law, as we call it. And finally, we've got a question from one of our listeners about uh, the Bill of Rights and how it can be uh, entrenched into our constitutional makeup. Oh, well, let's get underway then. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to speak with you, and you've no doubt heard uh, my dulcet tones on a few uh, public service announcements. Uh, we have a situation where we've got a new proposal that set out in the online censorship laws, uh, safer online services and platforms discussion document. So in that document, there is the proposal of a new regulator uh, to uh, look after and be responsible for all online content. Uh, that is online content that is media, film, broadcasting, advertising, press and print, and most importantly, social media platforms. Uh, that is effectively, let's call it what it is, it's online censorship laws. Uh, so we've got this proposal, and it is only a proposal at this stage, with uh, some uh, a bill or laws being proposed to be ready by next year. It is particularly important that we all have our say uh, in this uh, process now. Uh, submissions are due back on the 31st of July, so we've got a couple of weeks to get replies in. Uh, we have prepared and we have detailed uh, submissions uh, on how to make submissions, uh, where to send them, uh, and also some outlines of what your submissions might be. But I think it's particularly important if we take a few moments now to discuss them and what's being proposed further. So what's being proposed is a new online content regulator who will be created to ensure that online content conforms with codes of practice um, that will supposedly be focused on removing high risk and unsafe or harmful content. Um, and those codes of practice, which will be generated or created by um, the, the, the platforms, um, will have to meet core legislative requirements, but then also comply with the codes of practice to which the regulator agrees with. Uh, the potential is for hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines, 
Um, and even at the moment, we've got a situation where the DIA um, can issue an official takedown notice for what's called objectionable material, objectionable content. And that objectionable content um, can, uh, if refusal is made to take that down, that can result in a $200,000 fine. So we've already got laws that are doing exactly what they need to do, objectionable content, which is you know the worst of the worst. Um, it is not just illegal content, it is extremely harmful, awful and revolting content, uh, which you know all of us with a moral compass will be able to agree is uh, wrong and shouldn't be online and shouldn't be being shared. So there are laws that exist there. That's not what we're targeting here. We're targeting the softer concepts of unsafe or harmful. So we've got a very interesting situation with what's coming out and what's being proposed. And this is, again, just a situation where they're proposing a system or um, a, a, a group or a, a opportunity to um, set up systems to regulate this information. Um, and then it's a case of what information they're going to regulate will no doubt change and grow and you know become more significant. So what the harmful content definition is at the moment is um, content causes loss or damage to rights, property or physical, social, emotional or mental well-being. Um, being harmed is distinct from feeling offended, although content that is harmful will often cause offence. Likewise, unsafe content is where there is a risk of harm occurring that is, uh, if that content was experienced by a person. Everyone's risk profile is different. Safeguards can be put in place to help reduce the risks. So, Nick, I'm not sure what you think on those um, definitions, but that's what um, uh, the DIA is proposing the regulator will protect us from. I've got 100% agreement when you see that it's a softening down on um, the ability of people to be harmed, if that's the way to put it. And you're 100% right. If you don't like seeing something that you're watching, uh, close your window. You know what I mean? Uh, get rid of the YouTube channel you're following. Um, unsubscribe to that Facebook page. Uh, you know, uh, don't follow that person on Twitter or whatever, whatever. Or even like, you know, praise be, we've got, as you said, got existing laws. We've got, even got a harmful digital communications act, which has been in place only a year or two. Make a complaint under that if you think you were harmed by it. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's definitely without, without question going to turn into an overreach. Uh, without question. But the overreach, the interesting thing about the overreach, uh, and I know this because I attended one of the online uh, Zoom uh, meetings that the DIA put on, and the interesting thing about the overreach is that they want the platforms themselves to be regulated. So, uh, of course, what we, not individual websites, but we're talking uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, YouTube, potentially Substack, uh, you know, the, plat the these massive platforms, um, Spotify, Joe Rogan, for example, uh, via via Spotify, and all of those platforms are owned offshore. Um, and I raised a question at the online webinar put on by the DAA when I said, "Look, uh, all of these platforms are owned offshore. How, in God's name, in New Zealand, are we going to uh, make law in New Zealand that enforces that that?" Make, make sure that these off, offshore uh, platforms uh, comply with them because it's very, very hard to enforce a law that is passed in New Zealand 
against an entity, particularly an online platform that is set up in Norway or Sweden or Australia or WeChat in China, for example. What, how is New Zealand going to enforce against WeChat, which is a government-owned chat channel, that some of their content uh, is harmful and scary and should be, you know, removed? How are we going to enforce it and regulate it? And how practically will it happen? And the answer was that it's going to require a lot of international cooperation from foreign governments. And so um, we all know what that means, right? So there's going to be uh, a push undoubtedly from uh, GOs, perhaps even NGOs, uh, United Nations, even World Health Organization and others, uh, a coordinated, uh, I guess, approach to ensure that these platforms around the world comply with, you know, their way of thinking and what they mm. believe is harmful and what they believe shouldn't be shared on the internet. Without question, that's where it's going to go. Uh, you know, you don't need to be Nostradamus to see that's where where this is going. So, uh, but the other interesting aspect, uh, you know, Newer also said that uh, there's takedown orders available at the moment. Well, we know during we know during uh, the COVID um, Model that the Prime Minister's office here, uh, Ardern, was was in cahoots or in, in cooperation with, with uh, Meta here in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, in relation to taking stuff down off, off Facebook uh, directly, the Prime Minister's office, right? So uh, we, we know that the power is there already. Um, you know, it was used, it was used during COVID. We know that. Um, I think an official information at request got that information out. So there's takedown orders. There's the, you know, the prime minister's already done it. There's a harmful digital communications act. Uh, so the the expansion of the stuff around the world to involve uh, other, you know, um, government organisations. Well, you know, uh, anyone with half a brain can see um, how I think how damaging this can be for uh, basically world freedom, in my view. Absolutely. And yeah, just taking taking that exact point, this is a, a, a global approach. We can see similar laws that are being um, proposed in Australia uh, that is actually called mis, mis and disinformation laws. Uh, the soft pedaled definitions under the ACMA, um, which is the new um, regulator, online regulator proposed in Australia, um, you know, can take down virtually um, anything that falls within these very soft subjective definitions of I just don't like it so it can be taken down um, and we can see that happening uh, elsewhere Canada similarly the UK I think we had a session on Ireland not long ago where we were speaking about the um, hate speech laws there you know this is a complete uh, attack on freedom of speech, which is a, a fundamental human right, which uh, each and every single one of us is entitled to have and to hold. And yet here we have is a, a global approach to quash any of that um, whatsoever. Interestingly, too, yeah. is a situation where, yes, we're talking about this, you know, the, these um, overseas giants or tech giants being able to um, be controlled by the um, government of the country that they are so situated, uh, which is, you know, the rules on, on jurisdictional law. Um, but, you know, that's not what this law is for. This law isn't for Meta or uh, Instagram or the like. Um, this law is really going to be going after those platforms in New Zealand 
um, though you know an expected audience of 100,000 or more annually or 25,000 account holders annually is a platform for which a code of conduct will no doubt um, be established by probably the bigger players. But separately, the regulator has their own power to designate whether a, a, a platform is going to be um, regulated if in two respects. It's unclear whether the threshold has been met, i.e. that 100,000 or 25,000, or the risk of harm, presumably assessed by the regulator, is significant. So, you know, it's not even a case of this is the size of the platform. It's a case of, no, this is harmful content, and we've just touched on what that definition is. Um, and yet we've got, you know, this regulator being able to say, you know, reality check radio, you're sp spreading harmful content and therefore, you know, we're going to investigate that and it's the regulator themselves investigating it uh, and we'll either fine you or just take you down. And they're playing, I think, have to play, I think, judge through an executioner in respect of all this because if there is inverted commas harmful content, uh, they are not, and say so they, that's the regulator, is not, uh, and in fact, even the platform itself, because they, they will face heavy fine if, if if the content is not removed or taken down. And they won't want that, uh, of course. So it, it will simply be a matter of at face value, it's harmful, it's down. And now you can make, you know, as a content provider, uh, RCR, anybody, you can make all the pleas you want to the regulator after the event like we do to the Advertising Standards Authority, the BSA, and say that was wrong, you got that wrong, you know, that that shouldn't have been held to have been offensive or whatever. Uh, and nine months later, you'll get a decision if they actually think you're right. Uh, but uh, by that stage, of course, it's far, far, far too long. Uh, and, you know, the, the horse has really bolted because, um, you know, the, the content you wanted and the information you had and the opinion you had that you were sharing, uh, well, that was nine months prior and it's not able to be heard so, uh, and we also saw, you know, during um, and the stuff that's come out uh, in the Twitter files as well, that the American government was very closely working with Twitter to uh, to prevent and to, well, I guess, prevent and also to ban content uh, going uh, on Twitter and being put out uh, on that platform. Uh, that was, I guess, you could you could describe as uh, anti the government's position on COVID and the vaccine. And so they were, and this this was this was a person in the White House. For listeners who haven't followed the Twitter files, there were people dedicated in the White House to corresponding with Twitter uh, top brass on a daily basis to ensure that stuff was not um, spread on Twitter that was anti the government message on COVID. So uh, it's already been done, and now obviously the government, these governments have decided. That oh goodness, you know, um, we didn't have many powers then. We, we all we could do, uh, really, to ensure that our uh, propaganda got out there uh, was to try and, uh, you know, be uh, in cahoots with Twitter. So we need a law to try and make sure that our job is made much more easier. Uh, and this is where this is going. Uh, and the law will be set, as I say, um, relatively globally. So as I, you know, I explained. Well, five minutes ago, welcome to the new world order. Um, because uh, really, you know, once this comes, to if or once this comes to pass, and look, and so if and once it comes to pass, the the the, the DIA presentation said this could be, you know, anywhere between three to four years, maybe even longer away, because it will take significant amount of international cooperation. Uh, but you know, who's to say that they won't push it through? We've already seen 
you know, uh, extensive efforts to ram through hate speech legislation here as well. So who's to say that uh, an incoming, you know, if, if, if the election was won by uh, Labour and the Green Party uh, and the Murray Party, I suppose, in October, that they wouldn't try and progress this as quickly as they could. Um, and, 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 you know, if you were a politician of that ilk, you'd be mad not to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, being left behind and, and the like with not doing this now. So I can I can guess that we will have a um, bill very quickly, no doubt in 2024. Uh, there's legislation being drafted all around the world that has um, is of a similar vein um, and, and perhaps more extreme in some of its concepts. Uh, this is a soft pedal to establish a system and put in, in, in place a regulator that will be able to unilaterally decide um, many things and then be able to um, accuse uh, police and um, uh, enforce uh, findings against organisations and platforms um, which don't uh, fit the narrative. So it is particularly interesting. Just going back to one comment that you mentioned there, uh, Nick, the Advertising Standards Authority, I think, is a, a very good example um, so uh, at Voices for Freedom, we uh, issued and circulated uh, pamphlets. We uh, circulated pamphlets regarding masks. On that uh, masks pamphlet, there was eight points that were made in respect of masks. Uh, the Advertising Standards Authority having to apply the uh, rules and its codes that it had at the time um, had to determine that the masks uh, uh, pamphlet was factual because we were able to refer to um, evidence with respect to every single one of the points we made. Uh, a month later, the Advertising Standards Authority wrote a special um, set of rules with respect to anything to COVID. And thereafter, every single one of our uh, masks uh, flyers was found to be in breach of the code, despite following every single one of the steps that I've just uh, suggested, which was we were able to satisfy and provide a um, a, a, an article or a paper that went to prove the statement we were making. So uh, it's just make it up as you go. And, you know, we've seen that too with the Media Council and the Broadcasting Standards Authority. So yet another regulator. Um, and what can I say? Yeah, so again, just reiterate that um, submissions are, are, are closing on the 31st of July uh, on the proposed new uh, codes of conduct and regime. And we encourage all listeners to jump online. There are links on the website. That's uh, correct. There yeah. are links. Um, that is www.defendfreespeech.co.nz or www.defendfreespeech.co.nz. And you can see the submissions, uh, the outline of submissions, how to submit them, and a couple of suggestions, uh, as well as feel free to utilise anything that you've heard here today. Uh, shall we move on to uh, GFB Customs case, the matter in the Employment Court, which was an appeal that was heard, I think, in the middle of last year um, with a decision that came out, um, obviously, the, what was it, two weeks ago? Yeah, so we touched on this um, last, uh, last week, and uh, GF, uh, it reads, just remind us of the basic background to the case and, and back to the case. And GF was a, an employee of Customs, was fired, I suppose, or her employment position at Customs was terminated um, as a result uh, of her failure to uh, be vaccinated. So she took a case, yeah, I think she took a de, de novo hearing, didn't she, which is a whole new uh, case to the Employment Court. So 
She, she took her case of a, in court anyway, and she, look, she was successful. And I think the decision came out three or four weeks ago. Uh, and uh, again, another example of uh, a person who, uh, you know, fought the regime, so to speak, fought back uh, against, uh, well, fought for what she, you know, believed in, what she stood up for, et cetera, and, and was victorious. Um, it's a reasonably decent judgment, and I've spent a little bit of the last week uh, poring over it. It's uh, it's 60-odd pages. I've got through half of it, and I just thought that the cases are deemed uh, it kind of acceptable or where the situation, um, you know, is, is – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, if you can make an argument that Tekanga applies and that particular court and judge at the time – decide it's relevant, then uh, it can be argued in that particular case. That's kind of how it is. And so here with uh, with this employment case with GF and Customs, uh, GF argued that uh, Tekanga applied in her employment situation. And that is because the, uh, the Public Service Act, which governs uh, the employment relationship between uh, state, um, state entities and employees, had been changed by Parliament only uh, a few years ago. And uh, particularly, uh, the judge used uh, speeches made in Parliament by the current Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, and now the Minister of Finance, uh, Grant Robertson, who both argued that uh, the Public Service Act must and needed to be changed in order to take uh, um, or to have uh, a Te Maori review of things, in other words, to, to take a view of things of, of the Maori perspective of things, which includes tikanga. So we've heard this, you know, we've heard this a lot recently that there is a, you know, a, a Maori uh, world view, or you know, um, they have a through the lens, I suppose, of, of Maori, uh, and um, they look at the world, uh, Maori people, differently than I suppose. Other people do, and so um, the Public Service Act had to be changed to, to take account of how, um, how how Maori look look at the world and how they uh, deem the uh, employment relationship to be between you know uh, I guess customs and their employees, and so you know it's and that includes Takanga, and so this this employee GF uh, argued that look. Uh, it was basically tikanga or um, uh, the Maori worldview, or the judge actually ruled that the Maori worldview through the legislation was that there must be a, a much more close relationship between the employer and the employee. And um, he quoted various um, parts of those two speeches by Hipkins and Robertson uh, and believed uh, quite strongly that, in fact, uh, tikanga was very, very closely linked to the employment relationship, particularly under the Public Service Act, um, especially if, as I say, two senior cabinet ministers had argued in Parliament that it should be, uh, and therefore uh, it became relevant in this employment relationship as well. Mm, okay. And, and so yeah. was GF herself um, uh, of Maori origin? No, no, she wasn't, no. Oh, so it can apply to everybody in New Zealand? It can apply to, it can apply to everybody. So... Uh, this is the unusual thing. Peter Alice wasn't wasn't Maori either, and so uh, you, know, you know the Supreme Court decided that uh, he could take advantage of of um, of using tikanga in his appeal as well. Yeah. 
Okay. Oh, well, thanks so much for that, Nick. Um, yeah. I'm not sure I'm more enlightened. I feel like this would make it very difficult to write a legal opinion if someone was coming to you for an advice on prospects, um, because it does seem that it's quite hard to nail a position to the mast of um, if there is a tikanga overlay. Uh, look, that's that's a central issue here. One of the central issues is very difficult to nail anything to the mast. Uh, and, and the problem with this is is that the law, one of the fundamental principles of the rule of law and the law itself is that, as you know, Katie, it needs to be certain, right? So the law needs to be certain and understandable by people because um, you, people are expected, uh, you can't argue uh, ignorance of the law uh, as a defence generally. And so um, part of the reasoning for that is, is, is that, well, we're not part of the reasoning, but because you can't argue that, we will make the law certain so that it's easy to understand. Whereas what I see with Takanga is that is, is the complete opposite of certain. Um, in fact, you know, it has to be uncertain because it, it differentiates between um, each individual iwi uh, in the country as well. So no one's ever going to know what particular custom or principle applies at any particular time to that iwi in that locality according to the uh, legal case that is amongst it. And they need, uh, they're going to have to, in all of these cases, they're going to have to have expert Maori witnesses uh, to be able to say, if, if you were in court saying, I'm going to argue te kanga, uh, there has to be um, an interpleader by a Maori group to to give expert evidence on that issue. Incredible. So, yeah. what happens if I'm 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 an applicant bringing a case and I'm not Maori? Which tikanga applies, well, or do well, we just do it? Do we just you know throw it out there and, and see which one you know uh, works best? Yeah, look, it would have to apply. I mean, if if you can if you can. Um, if you can go to your lawyer and say, this is what has happened to me, this is my legal case uh, in you know, English common law or under statute or something, and, and then do some research and say, but actually I think there's a tikanga principle that can help me here too, and here it is. And if you can find you know, a local uh, kamatua or a local expert, a Māori elder, who can stand up for you and say, yeah, 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 that's right. I think actually um, you know, tikanga here can definitely apply in your case, then you know, go for it. Hmm. All right. Well, separately from Tinkanga, I thought that there were some other fascinating concepts that came out of the GF case. Um, and it was a really interesting and, and detailed history. And of course, um, uh, at, at the time, it was a situation where um, GF had started on a fixed um, uh, term contract. Uh, she had been bought in specially as a consequence of the um, uh, lockdowns or the um, border lockdowns in New Zealand. And um, that's why the reason why her role was created. Um, and she obviously commenced um, under that role. One of the things I found really interesting is that um, there was a uh, testing requirement that was ordered quite early on, um, and that testing requirement was, a, I guess, a mandatory testing under, uh, uh, I think it was even called the testing requirement order for what, in the entire time of her employee. Uh, not once was GF required to uh, be tested by the um, Customs Department. So I, I thought that was quite interesting um, as one of the findings in the case. The judge went into great length in the decision to outline the chronology of, of what had happened from the time GF was employed all the way through to, you know, her uh, termination uh, or dismissal 
particularly around all the customs um, communications around the vaccine, what they should do or needed to do or didn't have to do, uh, whatever. And and one of the very interesting um, you know points that I've just got to was uh, that um, that GF believed that uh, her position was fine because basically customs were not requiring a mandate uh, for for tier one or at least for frontline workers. And so she she believed, and, and in fact, some of the emails she got, she just deleted without looking at them because early ones had said, this is the position. Um, if you're um, not, don't want to be vaccinated, we accept that. That, that at the moment, that's going to be fine. So um, if you don't want to join the teams meeting, all the all the other communications around the, the protocols we're going to set up for vaccination, then don't read on and just delete the the, you know, the following emails. And that's what she did. She just said, oh, "Okay, this is another email on on vaccination." Well, I don't need to read this because I've I've told them that, and they've told me that it's not mandatory, so I'll get rid of it. Um, but that all changed. That all changed uh, in I think it was April 2021 when the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, made an announcement which horrified GF, according to the judgment, that all frontline customs officers uh, uh, or customs workers uh, would would have to be vaccinated. Uh, and that just, for me, if you, you know, um, one of the things that was really troubling for me during the, the whole um, two, two and a bit years, whatever it was, uh, with COVID, uh, was the ability of uh, not just, well, I guess we're talking about New Zealand here, so we just talk about our government, but the ability of the government uh, and the Prime Minister, the Minister of Health uh, and others to completely override uh, established protocols in respect of lawmaking and the power of the state versus its citizens. And, you know, it wasn't called the podium of truth for nothing because, as we saw during lockdowns, every day at one o'clock, uh, the Prime Minister would stand up and on some days would literally just pass a law. She would just say, this is now what is happening, right? And none of that law went through a uh, select committee None of it was uh, available for uh, public submissions. None of it went through Parliament because Parliament was suspended. You know, the, um, of course, no MPs could fly to Wellington and what have you. So uh, the Prime Minister just simply stood up at the lectern at one o'clock and said, this is now the law. And this is what she did uh, with this particular case with, with the customs. She just basically said, as at the state, all frontline customs workers are going to have to be vaccinated. And that was a law in the country. It's deeply troubling uh, as a parliamentary liberal Western, you know, Westminster democracy, uh, and knowing the, the the system of lawmaking that we have in this country, that that was allowed to continue for as long as it did. Uh, and it happened here, and that ultimately, actually, that was the downfall of customs in this case, and that led to GF potentially winning the case. Yeah. Look, I, I my feeling on the case was. Uh, that certainly was an aspect of it, but I do feel that on on, on reading the decision, that um, customs' entire approach was pretty woeful. So, under employment law, you um, can be have you can have a um, justified dis, uh, unjustified dismissal or a, a, a disadvantage if the process in which uh, you get to being fired is wrong or the decision is wrong. And in this case, the process um, seemed just hopelessly woeful. They've got risk assessments that they're saying that they're doing regularly, yet the risk assessment that they had was dated September 2020. 
Um, there were no, no controls in the risk assessment with regards to vaccination. Um, they were uh, looking, certainly talking about it. There was a lot of promotion for it, um, but there was clearly a distinction between uh, those that uh, were willing to get it those that were a bit hesitant and needed more information, and then those that uh, didn't wish to get it at all. And then there was clear directives for those people that didn't want to get it at all to have um, to, to delete the emails and essentially not participate thereafter. Mm. And you know, the the uh, you know, all well and good. I don't think a decree from the podium of truth, uh, you know, absorbs or absolves you of your right um, and obligations a, a, as a good employer. And this was the public service. Um, you know. It was had sensible heads prevailed and had due process be adopted. This is a large government organization. It has a huge HR department. This is not their first rodeo. They should be able to aptly and sensibly apply a risk assessment. They should be able to roll out the policy, irrelevant of what it was. But it was just seems that everyone got so stupid under the guise and fear of COVID that they failed to follow the core principles, which would have got them to a safe haven had they done so properly. And, you know, we're seeing a decision that comes out, what, two and a half years after. What a waste of time. This poor woman has been bankrupted in the meantime. She's not only been hurt and humiliated, she's been without work. And it just is atrocious that we get some vindication two and a half years after when had cooler heads prevailed, due and proper process had been adopted, the application of core principles that you know we have had that in our small little time as a country, um, but that we have developed, um, had been applied. And I, I find this so disappointing and so frustrating and you know, all well and good that this decision comes out now. But this is a decision that shouldn't have had to have happened, and it should have been one that was um, applied by the HR department, suitably engaged to do so at customs, and it wasn't. Well, good on you, GF, and um, yep. good on you for having um, uh, the guts to stand your ground and to get there. Um, yeah, agreed, you know, agreed, agreed, yeah. I'm sorry it's taken so long, and I do hope that you've um, uh, got the vindication that you so rightly deserve um, with this decision. Well, shall we move on? We've got um, another interesting case. This one is the uh, UK Phillips and Barclays. Yes, yeah, so this popped up in my feed during the week. And of course, last week we spoke a little bit about uh, Nigel Farage and his battle with the banks in the UK at the moment. They want to uh, cancel them, basically, and remove them from me. I think now, just on that topic, a bit of a segue, I saw during the week that he's now had seven banks refuse him a bank account. So he's got a few problems that he says he doesn't want to leave the UK, but it may end up that he has to leave the UK in order to live his life because uh, no bank <laughs> apparently wants to have him. Well, he, here's a situation here where um, uh, Mrs. Phillips, or Mrs. Phillip, actually, without the S here, um, was a victim of what's called uh, an ATP, Authorised Push Payment uh, Fraud. Uh, and that is where... Uh, basically, um, the bank contacts you, or it's not the bank, but you think it's the bank, and says, "Look, you need to transfer some money, get your money out of this account because there's scams on the on, on the on the trail, and you need to act now, withdraw your money from this account, put it over here, otherwise you're going to lose it." And so that's what happened to her, um, and she um, rang her bank or contacted her bank, um, Barclays, and said. 
goodness, you know, I've been told this. Will you please uh, take seven hundred thousand pounds out of my account and put it over here? Otherwise, I might lose it. Um, and um, they didn't. They didn't really um, check much, and they just acted on her instructions. And of course, that went to goodness knows where, never to be seen again. So she sued Barclays Bank, and she tried to argue, or she did argue, that the bank had a duty under what is called in the UK a quintscare, Q-U-I-N-C-E care, one word, quintscare duty uh, to her. And the quintscare duty is uh, where um, where the the bank has a duty uh, not to execute a payment instruction given by an agent of its customer. So this wasn't an agent of its customer here. This was the bank itself. The agent might be, you know, a nephew or someone acting under an attorney or someone like that. But but the quintscare duty is the bank uh, has a duty not to execute a payment instruction given by an agent of its customer without making inquiries that the bank has reasonable grounds for believing that the agent is attempting to defraud the customer. So that's a well-known duty in English banking law. Um, and it, it, so that the bank has a duty to the customer to protect the customer in those situations. So Mrs. Phillip uh, tried to extend that quick scare duty to the APP fraud, uh, where the fraud deposes as the customer's bank itself and tells them, in other words, Mrs. Phillip here, that their bank account has been compromised and could try to convince her, or did convince her, to transfer the money to a supposed safe account. And as I've explained, the money uh, was then uh, lost forever. She bought the claim for £700,000. At first instance, the High Court um, found in favour of the bank on the basis that the Quinscare duty did not apply to the APP fraud, only to the agent fraud. Uh, now, the Court of Appeal overturned it, um, recasting the Quince Care duty uh, by holding it was not limited to the agent uh, situation and could apply where a customer had themselves uh, authorised a payment induced by fraud from the bank, uh, what they believed to be the bank anyway. Well, the Supreme Court over- overturned that and has said that banks are not under a legal duty in the UK to step in when they think their customer is the victim of APP fraud. That's a job for Parliament. Uh, Banks owe a duty to protect their customers against the acts of customers, dishonest agents only. Um, Banks will likely be held liable if they go ahead with transfers without making further inquiries, but only where they have received reliable information from a source, such as the police, suggesting that the customer's payment instruction has been procured by a fraud. Um, and so um, that's basically the nuts and the bolts of it. I went into a lot of detail as regards this quince care duty and how how or whether it should be extended. Uh, there's a lot of academic debate in the case uh, around, you know, um, in fact, a couple of New Zealand, particularly one New Zealand parliament, uh, banking, uh, banking and contract law professor Peter Watt, who... Um, Peter Watts was at Auckland University when I was there all those years ago. Very eminent um, professor uh, in banking and and contract law. Uh, They referred to him uh, quite a lot, some of his writing, but they didn't follow um, basically what he thought in some of his academic articles. But anyway, poor Mrs. Phillip is seven hundred thousand pounds short now, and um, and that look, and that's just not a 
Um, you know, that, that's in the UK, and people here might be thinking, oh, well, that, that's in the UK. Does it really apply to us? Well, I think, I think, uh, if, it, you know, if we if we ever get to a situation here where a customer takes uh, a bank to court because of, of of a scam like that, um, certainly, um, I think, you know, without Parliament intervention, that would be very strong authority to find in favour of the bank uh, in this country as well. Mm. Interesting. I certainly had the situation during the week where I needed to do a transfer and um, had to speak to the bank to uh, change the limit on it. And um, the bank, you know, made some quite nosy inquiries, I felt, um, about, you know, the purpose of the transfer, who it was going to, um, uh, why was I doing it and things like that. And I was um, sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. Do I, I want, one, it's none of your business. Um, but two, you know, she then went to elaborate and explain, look, I just want to ensure that this is not some scammer. Do you know who it's being transferred? Have you transferred to this before? Is this a um, is this a family or a friend? Um, so there was quite a bit of inquiry that was done at that time of that um, uh, of that uh, change in limit. But you know, seven hundred thousand pounds is a significant amount of money. So just on that point, actually, and my so I lived in London for a couple of years and. My recollection of the banking system in London uh, was that it is a 10 or 20 years behind uh, the rest of the world. In fact, when I was there, um, you know, uh, this was probably mid to late 90s. Uh, remember, you, you took your, your actual bank book in there and they put it through a machine and it updated all the, well, they still had that process going in the late 90s. It was just archaic. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. Look, it's um, honestly a new area of law which I hadn't appreciated before. So, I'm really grateful for for that um, steer on that. Yeah. Um, don't use emojis. It is so poor form, um, and it also really um, is not just unprofessional. It, um, it it sort of colloquializes or you know cheapens the relevance or importance. And you know what? It really easily slips in. And the next thing you know, you're doing a wink emoji to your client, which is just so not appropriate. So what's the go of this case, Nick? Um, and uh, could you end up with um, a, a bundle of grain delivered to your place <laughs> just on the simple response of a thumb up, thumbs up? Uh, well, based on this case, it certainly could. And um, so what happened here was there was a, a grain, as you said, a grain and crop company in, in Canada sent a picture of a contract to a farming corporation uh, business um, in other words, you know, this is this is what we're proposing in terms of the delivery and everything of the grain and the crop to you. And in return, uh, that was on a text message, <laughs> return received uh, a big thumbs up emoji in response. Um, and it believed, that's the, the first party, um, Southwest Terminal, that the two therefore had entered into a binding contract to deliver 87 tonnes of flax at a cost of $82,200. Um, and um, of course, I can, you, you can probably imagine that. In fact, the the flax was never delivered, and the party that had you know sent the contract thinking, well, hang on a sec, um, I want you know eighty seven tons of flax. Here's my delivery terms. You have given me a thumbs up saying, yep, no problem. I, you know, my thumbs up. Well, I guess the thumbs. The whole point is what the thumbs up means. But the thumbs up to this person thought, yep. Contract uh, concluded. I'll deliver that. They never turned up, and he sued them. Uh, well, they were sued for the eighty-two thousand um, dollars of the of the flax amount that never arrived. And the judge said that um, 
that the emoji was enough to establish that there was a valid contract between the parties that the defendant breached by failing to deliver the facts. In my view, a reasonable bystander, knowing all of the background, would come to the objective understanding that the parties had reached consensus ad item, which is what you talked about, Katie, uh, a meeting of the minds, just like they had done on numerous other occasions. I find under these circumstances, a thumbs up emoji is an action in electronic form that can be used to allow to express acceptance of a contract. So there we go. So yeah, you're right. In contract terminology, you have what are called offer, acceptance, and consideration. And someone makes an offer for something, uh, offer to buy, offer to sell, doesn't really matter. Uh, and the other party has to accept it. But not only has to accept it, they have to communicate their acceptance. And before the communication is received, the party that initially made the offer can withdraw uh, their offer or revoke it. So I guess the the message is to to listeners: just be very careful. When you, you know, if you're in this sort of commercial area and you're sending some up emojis or yes, I agree with that or anything like that, you know, on a text exchange, it could easily come back to uh, to haunt you. Mm, absolutely. And that's really important too to keep in mind. You can also have oral contracts. So um, you can agree to buy a car um, uh, just by speaking to somebody as long as it's satisfying those requirements, parties offer acceptance and consideration. Uh, and that can be, you know, considered a binding contract. But, you know, in the situation where it comes to land, there is an express rule, isn't it, under the Properties Act, which requires all uh, property transactions to be in writing. Writing, correct. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Of, yeah, but you're right. For a lot of other contracts, it doesn't need to be in writing at all. A phone call, a text message, absolutely fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Well, we've got one last um uh, well, I guess this is our first uh, mailbag. So we encourage anyone to um, write into uh, Reality Check Radio and attention at to Legal Hub and the email be will be directed to us. One of our listeners this week, Nick, asked how to entrench the Bill of Rights um, Act into law so it, can be, it can't be altered without referendum. Uh, so do you want to have a go at this one first? This gets asked, asked a lot and... Um... And it stems, I suppose, from the view that if you have the Bill of Rights, which said you have freedom of expression and freedom of medical, you know, uh, freedom to be, you know, not coerced into medical treatment and freedom of religion, blah, blah, blah. What do they mean if the courts can just say it actually doesn't mean that we're going to ignore it? So um, the problem with New Zealand is, is, if you want to say it's a problem, is that um, the Bill of Rights is not um, supreme law. So... Um, by that I mean, in America, it is supreme law, and the courts um, must give effect to it without any other kind of qualifying factor. In New, in New Zealand, it's not supreme law, and the um, the supreme law in New Zealand is Parliament. And so, what our Bill of Rights says is that look, it's it's reasonably. Um, uh, persuasive, if that's the way to put it. And yes, everybody has um, the right to freedom of expression. However, that right comes subject to limitations. And, and those limitations have to be justified in a free and democratic society, etc. And uh, if those limitations can be justified, then that right uh, is limited by that, by that justified um, limit. So uh, for it to be actually supreme law, we would need we would need the country would need to go over basically through a, 
a reasonably large constitutional change in terms of our how, how our, our courts are made up, how the, how the parliament, how the country is made up constitutionally, uh, and the Bill of Rights are part of that constitutional framework would have to be entrenched as supreme law and be given effect to uh, every time it's argued rather than be, I guess, watered down through those justified limitations. Um, and as I say, I mean, um, that's... I, my personal view is that that can only really happen if New Zealand becomes a republic. Um, and what has the, and it puts the Bill of Rights in as a constitutional document, as opposed correct, to just a yeah. piece of legislation at the stage which it is. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, it is it is part of our constitutional framework, uh, the way New Zealand is made up. But we have five or six other pieces of constitutional framework um, as well. Including the Bill of Rights back in 1688, I think the Magna Carta might be a bit there. The um, I think the State-Owned Enterprises Act might be a part of our constitution. Um, there's you know various bits of um, the Electoral Act, parts of the Electoral Act uh, are part of our constitution. So there's various parts of legislation that sort of work together to form how New Zealand operates legally and structurally. Um, and yeah, it, it's, we, we, it's what's called. We have a loose, I suppose, loose constitution in New Zealand, not a tight one. But there to be a very tight one, and, and it, for it to take uh, supremacy over everything else, um, it would have to be, we'd have to have, um, as, as Katie said, um, the Bill of Rights as the number one document in the country, mm. as it practically is in America um, mm. with, with the American constitution. Yeah, yeah I recall during um, public law B, I think, few decades ago um there was a lot of discussion around whether or not um you know the bill of rights uh, should be entrenched uh, further as a constitutional document um so such that it is given greater weight um that what than what it is, is at the moment as a piece of legislation and um I, I recall one of the answers from the um uh the lecturer at the time saying oh don't worry it's not as if they'll ever breach it so uh, we don't need to make it an any greater document than what it already is. And that regularly comes back to me when I'm sitting there citing or quoting parts of the Bill of Rights Act in, in support of an argument that I'm endeavouring to make. Um, so I, you know, perhaps we should have done a lot more work back then 20 years ago to get that entrenched. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was a start, I suppose. Um, you know, will it ever be entrenched? But potentially in my lifetime, uh... I don't think so, maybe. I'm not sure yeah. with the swing of the pendulum that we're currently, or the trajectory of the pendulum that we're currently on, that it will. No, correct. It, it mm. would require a huge political shift uh, um, and um, and an acknowledgement by uh, the leaders, the politicians and prime minister and others that, in fact, they are not supreme and the people are supreme and the people's supremacy is governed by their rights under an enshrined uh, and entrenched Bill of Rights Act. And, you know, we've, I don't think the mood is there for that at the moment at all, anywhere near it. Yeah. No, definitely not. Oh, well, thanks, Nick. That has been a um, a, a, a fabulous um, legal hub. Uh, Paul, we missed you. Um, and we do hope your voice is resting up. And, um, yeah, thank you very much. And we'll catch you all again next week, uh, Wednesday morning. That's Legal Hub. Thanks, Nick. Bye bye. Bye bye. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.